Welcome to the Psychology of Success. I'm Caden Terry, and each week I help young hustlers actualize their infinite potential by featuring interviews with world-class leaders in business, sports, and health. Now let's get into the Psychology of Success. Today, we're excited to introduce you to Summit Athletic Club, a premier fitness facility located in the heart of St. George, Utah. Summit Athletic Club is not your typical gym. With state-of-the-art equipment, a wide range of classes and amenities, it's a place where you can not only achieve your fitness goals, but also unwind after a long day. For Psychology of Success listeners, Summit Athletic Club is offering a special. Instead of the normal $100 sign-up fee, tell them that I sent you, and they will drop the price down to $25. I want to thank Summit Athletic Club for being a sponsor of the Psychology of Success. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Today we got my boy Ben Gottfredson. Is that how you pronounce your last name? What's up? Yeah, it's yeah. hard, but it's phonetic. <laughs> Gottfredson. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, so awesome. So I'm super stoked to dive into Ben's story today because he's young, he's a hustler, and he's crushing it. Um, but before I kind of give an intro on him, I got to give a shout out to our sponsor, the brand new sponsor. We were just joking about this Pop Drinks. You guys haven't checked them out. They're here in St. George, and I think they got a couple in Vegas, all over the West. But they hooked us up with drinks today. Ben, what did you get? I got the pinked up. I usually, I usually don't drink soda, so it's like a special treat, and I'm the first guy, so I'm Dude, honored. There we go. Let's see. It. Cheers. Yeah, I got. So I got the same exact thing. So it's, it's just a little energy drink with coconut cream, strawberry puree, and pineapple, and some Sprite. So. It's pretty solid, but makes it feel like a Friday for some reason. Just <laughs> yeah. dude, now we got the energy just to hash it out. And yes, start talking about business. So, a background on Ben. Um, I think we met. Dude, how did we meet? Was it social media or the Young Entrepreneurs Club with Mitch? I think the Young Young Entrepreneur Club. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, uh, the Young Entrepreneurs Club. You have to check it out for my listeners. I interviewed Mitch Matthews in the past. Uh, him and Brody Fawcett. They put together this club where they have different guest speakers, but I saw Ben on there, and so we connected. But anyways, Ben is killing it. So he was a student here at Dixie State University. He's back on his own stomping grounds here on campus, played football. And he is the owner of Big Ben's Moving and Storage. Um, And he's also the founder of the Beyond Net Worth podcast. You guys will have to go check it out. We'll link it in the description. And also, he's the owner of Big Storage Ventures. So, dude, I'm stoked to dive into your story, man. Let's Thanks, do it. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's fun to be on your podcast. Yeah. Okay. Dude, so tell us kind of more of your story and how you got into business. Okay. So I grew up here in St. George and I, I really, you mentioned I played football and as a, as a young teenager, that's really all I cared about and I couldn't really hold down a job. So my dad wanted to teach me hard work, make me work for my money. So he he actually got me moving, just doing small odd jobs, and he kind of just gave me a very small push into moving furniture on the side. And then we just we got we found a niche. We took care of people, and you know, pre mission, post mission through college. And then by the by the time I was done playing football, it had kind of caught on fire. And so I went to college for my corporate job, but I actually decided after giving that a try corporate work uh-huh. i was like no i'm an entrepreneur i'm a i'm you know this is my cash cow and it was taken off well enough that i doubled down and just kind of you know for a while just put my head down and kind of scaled that okay yeah so was that so you, 
you said something interesting. So you're in college and you go into the corporate world. Was that after you graduated or while you're in college? Yeah, because, you know, your parents and, you know, they want you to have a hedge, right? If you, a lot of business owners don't make it. I think a lot more make it than at least on their second or third try than some people think. But I think people want to, people that love you, sometimes they want to, they want to fall back, fall back plan for you. Right. And so that's why you went to college. I got my bachelor's degree. I use very, very little of it. So I have some controversial opinions on college, <laughs> right? Dive into it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I have that, I have that fallback. And, uh, so I, I try, you know, my, my vision was like, okay, I'm going to college so that I can get a corporate job, get some experience. And then maybe I'll be you know, maybe I'll go off on my own then. But really, I learned that the school of hard knocks and experience is way more valuable than one college and two, any corporate job, just getting out there, trying things, you know, networking, finding good mentors and just learning from experience accelerates how fast you're going to grow faster than anything else. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm living that right now where you were. So yeah. just barely got back from my mission and I'm, I keep thinking to myself, man, do I really want to go to college? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, like my advice would be if you have a certain degree you want to get, right? Like doctors and lawyers, they got to go, right? That's their cash cow. They have to get a certification to have their cash cow. But for people, I don't know if you would call it, but like for people like me, you know, moving real estate, stuff like that, service-based business, real estate business, there is a lot better ways to learn. And so for example, I went to uh, self-storage investing conferences last weekend. I learned more in one weekend than I ever did in college the whole four years, right? So I think my lesson would be for people, make sure you know why you're going to college. And if you still want to go to college, even after deciding that you don't need to, make sure you get and focus more on the experiences and and extracting Mm -hmm. value than the grades. Because really, as an employer, no one cares about your grades. Only people that care about your grades are grad school people. And my takeaways are really from like, you know, Chris Brown, Don Watkins, some of those other entrepreneurship professors here. Those are really my my main takeaways that I got from college are just the entrepreneurship classes. And no one cares about my grades. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's all about what you do with that knowledge, how you apply it. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you graduate college. How did you then begin to scale your moving company? Because that's what you started with, right? Yeah, start. That's my cash cow. That's kind of my what got me started was just the moving company, and I think it for me it took a lot of hard work. Like I didn't skip any steps. Like I would do several months in each role. So I was I was working every day through the summers on the move jobs, and I was going out. I was doing everything, and then got back in school in the fall. Right, and my classes were. Tuesday, Thursday. So I would, I could only work actually as a mover Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. And I had to just run the phone and the administrative stuff Tuesday, Thursday between classes. And then eventually there got to be such a heavy volume of calls and administrative work that I even had to just step out of moving in town and I would just do the long distance stuff. And then, you know, I'll, I'll skip, 
I won't explain every step. But then I stopped doing the long distance stuff, just did the calls. Then there were so many calls I had to delegate that out and so on. Okay. Yeah. So, so you, you just kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. You just, you can't be afraid to delegate, right? One thing that is helpful for me is I'm not a perfectionist, right? I think a lot of people have trouble letting go of things being perfect and they also have trouble letting go of the money, right? Because if you're going to do a job, you're going to do it better than someone else probably. And a lot of times people are too prideful to let go of certain things. And then also you could do something for a high dollar amount or something that you really enjoy, like sales calls, right? I'm really good at sales calls. They bring in a lot of money and I enjoy it. So delegating that is hard for all those reasons. Mm. Yeah. Because so an issue that I have, and we were talking about this a little bit off air, is I love delegating. It's something I've been working on. But right now I'm in the spot, for example, with Bin Blasters, where it's a brand new company, garbage can cleaning business. And we're not quite making a whole lot of money yet because we're in the yep. startup phases, just like how you were. But I don't really have um, the resources to be able to delegate, one, the people, and also the money. Yeah. Right. And so what advice would you give to people that are in that spot like I am? First, you got to grow the pie, right? Like notice in my story, I started on the job every single day. And and so I think people do try to skip steps sometimes and try to get out of that work up front. And sometimes it works, right? Like we talked about Dirty Dough Guy. He never baked a cookie, it's right? Crazy, Which man. we admire, but it's because it's because his he wasn't doing it. It wasn't really a bootstrap business from scratch, right? He had other factors that are different than our businesses where we're bootstrapping from the ground up. He had some sort of capital injected and he had a little bit of a head start, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. But when you're talking about bootstrapping a, a company in college, you do have that period of time where you have, you have to be, you know, until you have enough volume you have to be in the field or doing some of that stuff uh, until, and so I think the lesson is figure out a way to get higher volume and then that will open up, you know, so that might go back to marketing strategies, which I know you have, I know you're working on it. Like you guys are growing really fast, but I think in order to justify stepping out, you got to have that volume, which comes back to marketing and sales and just, you know, it might be an online strategy. It might be a, uh, you know, some sort of networking in the community, but that might be something I would say. Okay. Dude, that, that helps a ton. So I, I think I just need to understand that it's going to take time and that right now I'm in the beginning phases Yeah. and I'll get to that point. Right. Totally. Okay. So you're doing the storage or the, the moving, then you get into storage, right? How did you make that jump? Where did that come from? Well, two things were happening simultaneously, right? So one thing was, I was getting a bunch of calls for storage units. So people would call and I say, Hey, can, can you move us? We love, we've heard good things about you. Yeah, of course. Well, do you have a storage unit for us too? Oh no, you'll have to go to one of our, one of our, you know, people that we worked with. So we just send them to our, we have lots of friends that own other storage facilities in town and we would just work directly with them to make the experience easy. But I realized I was kind of, I was leaving money on the table. Right. And I could have made it easier for the customer because now the customer has to make another call. So if I could have it in-house, it'd make a customer experience where it's just one call and it's handled. And then on the other side, 
I was starting to invest in real estate, right? Like I love frat houses, so I still have a couple of those. No way, in town, St. George? I have one in one here and one in Orem. No way, and just, I'm just renting, renting it out, out by the room. Oh, dude, month to month, and I've had I've had a lot of fun, and um, you know, right now. Obviously, skipping forward, I'm trying to sell those and put them all in storage because that's what I'm that's what I'm a big fan of. But at the time, I was like, man, this real estate stuff, like properties were appreciating well. I was cash flowing well with the frat houses. And then I have an Airbnb, too. And so I'm like, real estate is where it's at. And then I was getting the leads for the storage. So it just kind of was a natural thing. Um, and it took it was hard. Right. The one thing I. I want to make sure people understand is the barrier of entry and storage is tough. And that's why a lot of people, you might have good money saved up, probably enough money to have a big chunk of a of storage facility tackled, but it's a lot easier to get a couple single family homes because you have to deal with banks and builders and, and cities that want to block you from building oh, storage totally. units. How did you break that barrier? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to know because I've tried, man. We've looked into it and it's so hard. Yes. Yeah, so I think you got to be persistent. Like I went to every bank in town and I'm like, I'm super young. How old are you right now? I'm 28 right now. Oh, wow. But I was doing yeah. this at age 24, right? So I graduated college in 2018 and that's when I was like, doubling down on the moving company, starting to feel, feel like, okay, storage is the next move. And so I was going to every bank in town. They're like, look, dude, like you only got one or two years of good books. Give us a couple more years of financial statements and then we'll take you more seriously. But I was like, no, like I have enough, I have a good enough business plan. This is going to work. And so I, I went from bank to bank to bank to bank to bank over and over. And finally the third banker I went to Cash Valley Bank and I tried one banker. He said no. I tried a different banker, a different branch. He said no. I tried a third banker and finally he said yes. Dude. But I had to save up enough money. So I had to save up enough cash to buy the land for the storage units before that would even work. How, so how, how big was the land? It was two acres for 250000 And you had to pay cash for that? Just I straight. bought that cash uh -huh. and then I had to save up a little bit more. Um, but my point is, is there was a lot of bootstrapping and just saving up and grinding with the moving company. And then on the other, on the other side, I was being persistent with the bankers as well. Okay. So you secure the land. How old were you? 24? Yeah. When you secured the, the land. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have the land. It's, it's in your name. It's paid for in cash. And then what was the next step? There's still barriers, right? You gotta, you have to work with the cities. They want to block you. I. <laughs> so before you bought, was it zoned for that? This one was good. This one was, yeah. Okay. So this one was zoned right, but you still have. They still have weird issues. Just a joke, man. Well, for example, I I won't get too far into the weeds, but the setbacks, right? Like how far you can build from the property line. So they have one thing posted online, like for their city code. And we submit my, I pay my architect to submit plans saying, okay, here's the plans according to what you have online. And then the city in the meeting is like, oh, you can't do this. That's not the city code. And the architect's like, that's what you have online. And they're like, well, that's outdated. It's like, it's oh, your website. No, It says it right now today. You know what I mean? Oh. So you just have obstacles, right? And then... 
You have to make sure you find a builder you can trust. You have to make sure that the banks, even after you own the land, they have to see a feasibility study. You have to. What's that? A feasibility study is basically you pay a third party to run, um, you know, analysis on your business plan. And sometimes the feasibility comes back thumbs down, like this won't work. And sometimes it comes back thumbs up, right? And so you have to be really conservative. Like if you think you can get a certain price for a storage unit, the bank's going to make you chop that down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're going to be like, don't be so optimistic, right? And so what what happened is we would say, just for example, right? Let's say we said, okay, bank, we think we can get $150 a month for this size unit. And the bank says, well, we want you to underwrite at $100 per that unit. And then you get the loan, and then in real life, you charge more than $150 because you knew you were already trying to be conservative, but that's the game they make you play. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, dude, I'm following along. So, <laughs> yeah, dude, keep going with this story. You got me so, intrigued now. So, yeah, so we, we pushed through lots of learning lessons, right? And then this first facility in St. George, um, this is the one that I own 100% my own, right? It, it gets... You know, we do really well with it. We start filling up units even before the construction's no done. Way. And, you know, um, it's small enough. I call it my guinea pig because even though it's been a great success, I learned so much. But it was a small enough, you know, it wasn't too big of something to bite off right out the gate where we had it full pretty quick. Um, it's it's being profitable. And we so we, we had a win but we still learn so much. We're like, oh my gosh, we could do even better the next time. Uh-huh. And so I had a decision to make, which was basically, I'm my career is shifting to storage units 100%. Do I save up and do one every three years on my own? Or do I partner with other people and do a series of deals every year and have a real estate investing company? And so what I decided to do was... Thanks. What I decided to do was the real estate investing company, which is Big Storage Ventures, because I'm so excited about this asset. This is really my my passion. It's a little nerdy, but it's what I love. And so the way it's going, we're trying to put a series of deals together. And what we're bringing to the table is the barrier of entry. You know, there's a lot of other things we didn't talk about, but basically people that want to get into storage, everyone, it's no secret that it's a great asset. But a lot of people can't get in. Even people with great balance sheets, they might not have the experience or the bandwidth or the moving company to fill the units faster and for higher rents. Did you got it all now? So it's a monopoly. Well, it's just the the businesses are sister companies. They're complementary, right? Uh huh. And so what we do at Big Storage Ventures is basically we find people who want to be a part of self storage, who believe in it, and we make sure that they're a good fit. They understand know what it's going to take and then we partner up and we're putting together a series of deals every year wow so that's kind of the short version (laughs) dude okay so i kind of want to back up this first deal you did you paid cash for the land yes then when you actually built the facility was it just you did you have partners or how did that work no man the first one was just me in the bank obviously Wow. So the, yeah, obviously you have, um, the smartest way to do it at this conversation today, you know, the smartest way to do it is with debt. Uh huh. Just like any, just like any real estate. What kind of loan was it? Uh, that's an SBA loan. Okay. So, and SBA loans, pros and cons, right? Because, um, 
pros, you come with a lower down payment, right? So you're going to get a better cash on cash return with an SBA loan. So it's really popular and it's really attractive. Uh, what we're learning though, is that we're opening our mind to other loan products because SBA loans have a penalty for pay prepayment. So if you want to pull, now we have seven figures of equity in this first facility that if we want to, if we want to touch it, we have to, we have to consider the fee that comes along and the, really? yeah. So there's a prepayment penalty. So every year though, that fee drops with an SBA product. So you know, maybe it's $60,000 penalty and then the next year, 50, 40, whatever. So you have to kind of decide, okay, when do we want to pull that equity refinance and go to the next one where with other loan, more conventional loan products, or there's even some, there's even a bank we found that does special self-storage loans. You know, you're not gonna have to deal with that. Uh -huh. So you got, you, you can kind of get nerdy on different loan products. So that's what we do full time. Uh -huh. And so you know, we make it passive. So our partners, we, they have access to all of our, uh, relationships with bankers too, right out the gate. Totally dude. And that's what you bring to the table. That's what I think is so cool. Yeah. Anyone can go do a storage unit, but like you're saying there, it's such a big barrier and I've seen that personally and you have the connections, you have all this. So, so sick. How, so now you have big storage ventures. It's the real estate investing company with storage units. Um, how, now that you're trying to find investors, how do you approach them? Because for me, for example, like, so I have these tiny homes I'm building with my dad and my brother. I think I've told you about a little bit. Yeah. Out in a hurricane. And now I'm getting to the point where I want to approach um, investors with an opportunity to invest with me, uh, to put the money up, and then I would put together the deal. There's a lot of different ways to structure, and I'm still new to it and learning. But how did you approach partners, and how do you structure the deal? Well... Good question. I think you have to make it really attractive. One thing that helps is maybe doing it once, right? I don't know if you, maybe you do one with your dad, just one tiny home uh -huh. and you say, Hey, here's what this yeah. one is. Which we have, at. yeah. Right. Sold it and made money on it. Yeah. So I think that's enough, right? And you'll find, you want to make sure you find the right partner and you want to make sure that they, like for us with storage units, when we meet someone, we say, look, this isn't Bitcoin. Like you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get loaded overnight, but you're going to build wealth over time. Right. Mm. And so making sure you find the person that's the right fit is a big deal. I think if, if you have a good enough deal and you can learn how to communicate it, I think the finding the money and the partners is not, not the easiest part, but it's definitely not the hardest part. Uh -huh. That makes sense. Yeah. I think just putting more out about, what you're doing, building trust, you should probably have an episode, if you haven't already on this podcast, just about your tiny home idea, right? Because when people want to understand what you're doing with that, they can just, hey, I'll share this episode with you, like, if you ever wanted to consider it more, right? And understanding the vision is a big deal, too. Huh. That's a great idea. I'll do that. Yeah. Because we're in the process of finding investors and people that we can partner with. Um, cause I've had a lot of people that are just curious about it in general. Yeah. Um, cause do you, I'm sure you do the same thing with your podcast, right? Yeah. We've done a couple up. we need to do more, um, just storage specific stuff. We're more broad entrepreneurship, but right now I, you know, we're not having as, as hard of a time finding investors right now. It's finding deal, good deals. Ah. And so 
you know, we, we have, that's, it's all a machine, right? You got to find the deals. You got to find the partners. It all has to come together at the right time. Yeah. The timing. <laughs> it's crazy. Cause sometimes you'll have people that want a deal and you don't have one or you'll have a deal and then all of a sudden, you know, where'd they go? But when it comes together, it's really cool. <laughs> okay. So let, let's go through an example and you can go as much in detail as you want or don't want, but say I want to partner with you mm-hmm. and, um, your company, uh, the real estate company to build storage units. What would that partnership look like? What are the costs or how, how do you structure it? Yeah, good question. So basically we're going to look at two different kinds of investments. Um, and th- we have, it's a good example because we have two going on right now, right? So you have acquisitions in storage. Your tiny homes would be a little different. But in storage we have acquisitions and we have developments. So acquisitions is a storage facility that's already built and it's full and we go in and we see value add. So for example, this acquisition we have going on in Salt Lake right now, it's full, it's been neglected. So what what I mean by that is, you know, they have, it's poorly managed. They have a rundown office. The rents are too low, like they're half price everyone else in Salt Lake, right? So what we're doing is our strategy is to go in and buy and then we'll raise rent and fix operations and that's how we'll make our money. The, the benefit to a, an acquisition is that it already has occupancy, so there's lower risk. You, there's people in the units already. Um, and the downside is that people aren't dumb. They're not just going to sell to you for a discount, right? They know if you own storage units, <laughs> you're, you, you have a vault of gold, right? So they're going to they're gonna try to sell to you for a high price. And, you know, we can uh, negotiate. And we found in one that in Salt Lake that was good enough. So an investor that partners with us will get immediate returns, you know, same year, you're going to see returns, um, and they'll have a a good run, right? A development, you're going to buy dirt, you're going to build storage units, and basically that equity that you're building is basically going to be more in the long run. So, well, uh, an acquisition might have a better five-year outlook, a development will have a better 10-year outlook. So you kind of you kind of find which partner is right for which investment and and someone that might have usually people that need a return quicker. Um, usually they're smaller players, they might have less money to invest because and they they need to count on a return. And the p- partners on our developments, they have deeper pockets, they're big companies that they're like, we don't care. Uh, you know, if we don't see anything the first two years, as long as in 10 years you make us rich, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's kind of a tangent just on the first step, you know, we're, we're figuring out the point is you're fa- trying to figure out, okay, are you a fit? Do you have the right expectations for this asset class? And if you want to, you know, <laughs> we don't want to, uh, mislead you, right? Like some of these things they'll, they might take a couple months or a couple years and it might be a slow burn, right? But it, over the long run, you're going to get rich. Um, so I think that's the first step. Second step is once you say, okay, we're in, right? You will basically, we do all the work in our partnerships and I could list off everything that entails, but when you do all the work, you're what's called the general partner, meaning you're responsible for all, <laughs> everything, Right. And then you also have the group that's the limited partners. 
And so the limited partners, they're contributing, uh, contributing capital. And so you make it completely passive for them. And then you'll, you'll have a split, right? It could be 80, 20, 70, 30, 60, 40. And so you'll take a, a general partner share and then you'll basically sell the limited partner share. And so it's basically, you know, they're giving up um, that percentage of ownership that you don't have to put money in for. You just put in all the work and all the responsibility. And for me, bringing my moving company, filling up units twice as fast for twice as much, that's kind of where we earn our uh, GP cut. Does that make sense? Yes. So you had to have, this, this is interesting. I want to dive yeah. more into this. So to be a general partner, you had to have um, basically a record showing that you had success and you created success right. in your expertise. Right. And you have to have a good enough you know, return that shows, hey, there's room in the deal. There's enough skin on the bone for this to be a huge win for you. And yeah. now that's your, when you're to that point, you're not putting any of your own money into the deal. It's usually all the limited partner that well, puts it in. I do still. But so, for example... I can have my GP cut and still put my own money in and buy LP shares. And people like to see that because they're like, oh, you're willing to put your own money into it. That makes me excited. I'll put my own, own money into it too. Yeah. But you still have your, your GP shares are what you're earning with your work and your LP shares are what you're buying with your money. Just personally. Like, mm -hmm. wow. Dude, this, is, this is getting my, <laughs> my brain turning, even with my tiny homes, because... <laughs> One, it's exciting. Yeah, because yeah. my my partner and I, we have the expertise on how to build these tiny homes and how to make money doing it. Yeah, but now I want to go out and get limited partners. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never heard that term, limited partners, to where it's completely passive and they just put the money up. Yeah, and I take on the responsibility and I don't have to put any of my company's money because it's a general partner. But I like the idea of doing it as a limited partner to say, hey, I'm gonna have skin in the game with you. Yeah. Let's do it together, but I'll put in all the work. Yes. Because then it's unlimited, man. You can go out and get so many clients. Like you're not limited by your money because for a lot of the listeners, they're young and they think, oh, like I, I need 100K or 200K to start getting into real estate. But the biggest mindset sh change is when you realize, man, you don't need that. You can use other people's money right no. away. I would say a couple things is you don't need a ton of money to get in the game. Right. You can provide value in a lot of ways, being a wholesaler, putting together deals, you know, finding another creative partnership. Right. Um, there's lots of ways to get in the game. And I'd also, you know, just a lesson that I've learned. This is this is not a lot of people would disagree with this, but I would say get to commercial real estate as fast as you can. Right. Like buying one single family home at a time. Unless you're going to unless you're willing to build out this huge system of property management company and all these, you know, systems. So you're a single family home guy. For me, I, I love that phase of life, you know, where I had these single family homes, but I'm trying to get it all in commercial because the returns are way better and it's a little bit more passive. Like it takes as much work for me to run uh, one frat house as it does one storage facility. <laughs> right. So I think getting into commercial as fast as you can is a big deal. And I'll say this too, for you, as you're doing your tiny home venture, you're, you have different life cycle of your terms, right? So your terms, when you're first getting going, you got to give up a lot, 
right? You got to make it really enticing for the general partner because they're taking a risk on you. So you might have to give up a little bit more percentage uh, at first. And so that's why, honestly, like compared to, I have a coach who taught me all this. Real and, estate coach. Yeah. And compared to his deals, like the terms, his deals are so good that, you know, my terms are way better for the general partner than his because I'm less experienced. But your terms, you know, they're slowly going to get better and better and better for you. And they're going to start, they're going to start really good for the general partner. And as you get more proven, the terms change over time. And then what happens is you peak to where um, you basically want to go bigger and get like a fund or raise money at scale. And then your terms start to go back down and get better and better and better. So you can raise money at a really big scale. Which that's where you're at now because you have... No, no, we're the, at the beginning right now. Because you, you have the, the funding company, right? Yeah. To where you're bringing money in. Mm-hmm. But you're saying you're just getting started. There's still a I'm lot saying, more. Yeah, I'm saying we're just getting started as far as we've only... You know, today, ironically, we're closing on our th- on our third deal. Nice. So... Good. Yeah, yeah. So it's exciting stuff. And we should be closing on our fourth in the next couple of weeks. Dude, and he's, for the listeners, he's 28 years old. 28. <laughs> Yeah, dude, you can do this by 28. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But my point is, is like right now we're in our infancy as far as the storage company, as far as big storage ventures, our real estate investing company goes. So we're, I mean, we're giving up as good terms to our partners as we ever will, because we're still, we want raving fans, right? We want people to partner with us and be like, oh my gosh, these guys made me so much money. And then they'll want to be in the next deal and the next deal and the next deal. Mm. So you, you really do want to really incentivize early on and give a, give good. Obviously it has to be worth your time if it's not worth your time. And if you can't survive, that's another thing is it has to be good enough for you that you can survive, right? You can't do this for free or else you'll quit. You have to get paid enough that it's worth your time, but you want to give up as much as you can afford to, to your partners so that they love you and they, it's a success. So they'll keep coming back for the rest of your life. And so we're, we're at that phase too. But as we go on, as we get more proven, the terms will get better for us until eventually we want to raise money at mass scale. And then the terms will start coming back down the curve. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, totally. Dude, so you got it planned out. That's awesome. I, I wanted to highlight something that you said. You have a coach, yeah. right? I mean, I'm a huge athlete, played baseball through high school. Um, Absolutely love sports, but it's interesting like in life like we're all used to having Coaches with sports, but when it comes to life whether it's business or relationships or health For some reason like we don't have coaches and not even that it's not like we're gonna pay someone to do that. I don't know why that's like the status quo why that's so weird but a common denominator in clues that I've seen with successful people that they leave is that they have coaches in many different areas of their life. And so walk me through that and why coaching has been so important and why you're willing to invest in yourself by, because they're not cheap, man. Yeah. Why, why do you do it? Well, this is controversial, right? Because a lot of people have different takes on how important being a part of masterminds and networks and paying for coaching is. And I think it's specific to everybody, right? Uh, I think it depends on uh, where you're at. Cause I, I honestly never paid for coaching or a career or a, a mastermind until the last 12 months. Right. So the first, you know, 
until I turned 28, yeah. I wasn't paying for any coaching or mastermind stuff. So I'm not saying you got to do it out the gate. It would save you some time because you're going to learn lessons from people that is, is going to save you a ton of mistakes, right? So that's what you're doing is you're basically accelerating your growth. And I think you can get it for free a lot of the times. Like for me, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone, right? Like at, at this point, I'm not to that point where I'm going to, you know, start charge people. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet. Right. Yeah. I'm, and so I think if you find someone like me or, or someone that's just someone in, that, you know, that loves you, that wants to help you, I don't think you have to pay for it always. Right. And a lot of times, um, a lot of times it, it does help you to pay out the gate and get going faster. I think it's specific to you. So for me, this coach I was talking about, he's specific to storage investing. So he's not coaching me in life, health, even entrepreneurship. He's specific to one thing. And that that's a really big deal, right? I, I get a lot of my other mentors and co- coaching um, just for just for free for people who I know who I can try to provide value back to. And I think a lot of people, it's intrinsically rewarding for them to help you. So um, I would say if you're going to hire a coach, I, I've done it. I think everyone should at some point, but figure out what you want to get coached on. I'm also part of Brody's mastermind okay. and that's more of just like general rubbing shoulders as well. And that's a lot of fun too, but it's just more, um, you know, it's more big picture stuff. Like when I go to Brody's mastermind, it's just helping me, um, design my life where storage investing is really what's, um, like specific to what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Are you in, uh, so he's talking about Brody Fawcett for the listeners that don't know. He owns a, the real estate investing school. You have to check his stuff out. We're going to his cash flow conference. It'll be this week. I'll be there. Yeah, dude, me too. So, uh, well, I guess when this airs, it'll be a little bit after, but, um, a lot of our listeners will be there as well. Cool. But are you a part of his course, the real estate investing school? I'm part of his mastermind because, um, I, I would love to, and I've, I've picked his brain a lot, but I'm not part of, I've never done the actual course. I think paying for the mastermind is more expensive. And I think he includes a lot of what's part of his course in the mastermind. Yeah, totally. Okay. I was just curious cause I'm, I'm looking to jump into that as well. His, mm-hmm. his content's awesome. I went to yeah. his goal setting retreat, but it's so true. Like, cause for a lot of the, my younger hustlers out there, um, it may be daunting thinking like, oh, I can't afford to go to this thousand dollar mastermind or I can't spend 10 grand on a course. But for me and for you, I mean, we've found mentors that are more than willing to help Yeah. because it's interesting because those relationships work out when, cause just like you're saying, like they're more than willing to help like these people that have created success because it's fulfilling to them. Especially young young, people. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's what I found, especially with the podcast. They're more than willing to help if I have questions. Um, But part of that is giving value back, Mm -hmm. right? So Like pop drinks. Yeah, dude, for real. (laughs) Yeah, it's a dub. And so for me, like the way, or for example, my brother Kyler, I've talked about this a little bit. Kyler met Justin Prince. Do you know Justin? Have you met Justin? Yeah. yeah. So he, he met, was on our podcast. Oh, one, yeah. of our, one of our best episodes. He's a stud. Oh, total stud, man. So he's a mentor of mine. And Kyler, uh, my little brother, he was at Fitness Culture. Um, once again, best place to network the gym, dude. So he, 
was lifting and Justin came up to me. He was like, bro, you got huge quads, man. What are you doing? And they just got, <laughs> they got talking and it, Justin basically became Kyler's mentor because they started doing some business together. Like Kyler buys and sells like these exotic cars, um, Porsches, um, all kinds of stuff. And so he's been doing that with Justin. He provides value to Justin by giving him these cheap cars and making a profit with him. Yeah. And then Justin gives him all this business advice. Cool. So it doesn't need to be like on that level. But for me, for example, like I just got back from my mission. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. So for a lot of my mentors or people that I, um, ask for advice from, like I'll have them on the podcast, I'll promote their stuff I'll clean their garbage cans for free, <laughs> like whatever I need to do. Yeah. Uh, but even outside of that, dude, they're more than willing to help. So don't, for the listeners out there, I mean, don't be afraid to reach out to someone you look up to because you might be surprised that they're more than willing to help. Yeah. And what's the worst thing? It's like a no, right? Yeah. That doesn't cost you any money to get a no. It's like, if you're not willing to take a couple no's, you never know. <laughs> you're never going to get the biggest yes, right? Like reach, reach high with who you reach out to for help and partner with. Like, I think that's something too, is have a high self-confidence and just know that, yeah, you're worth partnering with. And if it's not the right time for them, a lot of people, um, a lot of people will come back to you later and be like, Oh man, I should have went into business with you when you offered. Right. Uh -huh. But the point is, is that the worst, the worst case scenario is no, that's all it is. So what may be in a lot of listeners mind and, and, and mine as well. So you have these mentors and you have these people, when you have an opportunity come up, for example, my tiny homes, how do I approach these mentors uh, to ask them if they want to do business with me? Like to where it, it doesn't like ruin the relationship or it doesn't make it, I don't know, kind of awkward. Like what advice would you have? Or is that even a problem? For, for me, it's a big enough part of, I mean, I think just make it part of who you are almost like, almost like with the gospel, right? Like if you're just talking about gospel things, you'll be able to know if people are interested in, in hearing about it. Right. And if it's helped you, they might be interested. Right. And same thing, like when putting it into storage terms, right. I am, I'm a believer. Like this has helped me build wealth storage units. Right. So for me, it's not a hard thing to bring up in conversation and I don't want to exclude them either. And so I think you just, just talking about it is not a hard thing. Like, yeah, I'm doing these tiny homes. Like it's a lot of fun. It's been cool. Like, have you ever, have you ever done that? Like what, what are you trying, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to be specialized? Are you trying to do one type of asset class? Are you going into everything? You know, it's stuff like that. Uh huh. Yeah. I think just making it part of your conversation, you don't have to hard sell anyone, right? Because the people that are going to invest with you are really probably experienced investors or That'd be uh -huh. better for you if you haven't experienced investors coming along. So I don't think you have to hard sell anyone. I think you just make it a part of your brand, talk about it more, and people will know you're doing tiny homes if you if you post about it, if you talk about it, it's gonna come yeah. up. Yeah. And I think for you right now, people more invest in you and who you are rather than your product, right? I've seen that a lot where they trust because you they've seen your track record and they've sure. seen the type of person you are. And so then they're more willing to trust you. Right. That's why we podcast. That's why we, that's why we invest money and time in social media is to build trust. Uh, obviously the reach, like you're going to reach more people with it, but you're also building trust and credibility, right? So 
if you can, ex- if you know your business plan backwards and forwards on tiny homes and you can explain it and it's something you're posting about all the time, it's like, yeah, people are going to know if, if you're, if you know your stuff or not. And so that's, that's why you're like, this podcast takes a lot of your time. You could be working on your business, but you're doing it to build your reach, build trust and build credibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. So I kind of want to dive more into, um, you and I are both return missionaries. You served in Florida, uh-huh. right? Awesome. Yeah. So I, I served in Seattle. Absolutely loved it. Just got back. The other corner. Yeah. <laughs> opposite ends. And so at least for me, dude, I've seen so many lessons from my mission that I've applied into business. So for you, like what, what lessons have you seen and how has your mission helped you be successful in business? I think more than I more than I realize the soft skills that you learn as a missionary carry on, carry on so much. Right. I think just listening act like active listening and being able to teach something clearly and being able to, uh, you know, all these little lessons, for example, like when you have a newer companion and you have to teach them, you have to let them teach the lesson, even though you think maybe you could teach it better, you let them teach. And, and that is a skill that will care like delegating, right? It's like the mowing the lawn metaphor. You let your son mow the lawn and it's not going to look as good as you, as if you were the one mowing the lawn, but your son's going to learn how to mow the lawn, which is more important than your lawn looking good. Does that make sense? Mm. So all these little, little things, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, doing hard things, facing rejection. I think those things... (laughs) Those things have done more than for my cur- my life and my career than anything you could learn in college, right? Yeah. yeah. Dude, I was going to ask you that same thing. Do you think it taught you more or more applicable lessons than college? Because I agree. Like, um, it was incredible. Just same thing like delegation, leadership skills, talking to people, like um, creating systems. Like, it's, pre- it's pretty cool. Like, now yeah. I'm, I'm applying it. Yeah. So it's funny because like, so as missionaries, we plan every single day, first thing, uh, just in the morning, and then we set goals for that specific day. And then every week we do weekly planning where you plan your entire week. And now uh, I found that to be so effective that I even do it now. Yes. So every Sunday I take two hours to weekly plan to where I'm intentional every single day. I schedule time for work. I schedule time for play. I schedule time for my family, for my friends for specific things that I want to create because by doing that, I'm cultivating my dream life and I'm in control. I'm on offense rather than defense. And that's what the mission taught me as well is like, if you're um, intentional each week with what you want to do, you can create your dream life. And I'm slowly seeing that dude. It's like, it's coming true as I plan and I align my plan with my goals that I write down each day. So that's it, man. You just explain one of the easiest things to do, but one of the biggest secrets, right? Uh-huh. It's awesome. Totally. Okay, so I want to hear, like, what would be your biggest piece of advice? Because we, we have a lot of listeners that are wanting to break that barrier of just getting into business and starting their first business. What advice would you have for them? Well, if I, your audience, right, they're, a lot of them are young, right? And even if you're not young, you know, the risk is always worth it the earlier you can take it. doesn't matter if it's a real estate investment. doesn't matter if it's a business. The earlier you get going, the better. Because for me, I took a lot of these risks. I got, uh, 
you know, for an LDS guy married later. Right. And I had taken a lot of these risks. So by the time I got married, I was in the habit of, I had a high risk tolerance, right? So I could continue taking risks. But if you try to learn this skill of taking risks after you have kids, it's really tough, right? Because then you got something more on the line, right? Like if you're, if you're single and you have, you know, you can always go back and live with your parents, right? And that's no big deal. You can take a lot more risks than if you have two or three kids. But in the same breath, like someone that has two or three kids, it's better to take the risk then than when you have five kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or it's better to take the risk when you're, you know, 30 than 40 or 60 than 70, right? So I'm not trying to rule anyone out, but I'm just saying the the earlier you get going, the better. Uh-huh. It's a big one. I agree. Because... I mean, we're so young for me, for example, dude, I just moved into yes. one of my <laughs> tiny homes. So I'm 20, just yeah. got back from my mission. And I was like, Which you know insane. what, while I'm waiting for this to sell, I'm going to move in and just raise the price. <laughs> and if it sells like Jackson and I, my partner on the podcast, we moved yeah. in and it's, it's like, dude, if it sells, so what? I mean, or if even with bin blasters, man, if it, if it tanks and if I'm dumping all this money into it and I don't get it back. Like, yeah, like that sucks. But one, I have so many lessons I've already learned. And two, like if I need to restart, so what? I'm not married, dude. I don't have kids. I mean, if I got to start from zero, who cares? Absolutely. I got plenty of time. I mean, people, I am, I feel like an anomaly because I was doing business, you know, at 23, 24, right? You're doing it at 20. That's insane. <laughs> that's such a, that's such an advantage, right? Those, yeah. those three years uh, that you got ahead of me, that's like decades of wealth, really, that you're going to be exponentially gaining. So yeah, good job, dude. It's fun. I appreciate it. It's, yeah. it's been quite the learning experience and I've, I've lost a lot of money too. I mean, I've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast, but I've lost money doing cars and different investments. Like you mentioned Bitcoin, dude, I've lost money <laughs> in Bitcoin. I fell for that trap. I bought oh. some before the mission and it's still holding on to open. It comes up, but I'm, I'm probably going to take it out and put it in more tiny homes, but yeah. I mean, anyway, so like outside of, I'm just curious, like outside of storage units, mm-hmm. what are you investing in? Or are you only focusing on storage units? Yeah, this is a big topic, right? Because a lot of people will tell you to, um, diversify, which is fine. But my strategy is all in on storage units. And I feel like within the asset class, there's enough diversification that will be protected. Storage units are a really counter-cyclical asset, which means they survive in bad times because people have to downsize. They have to put their stuff in storage units. Oh. And in good times, people are buying, 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 and they and they can afford storage units. So true. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I have frat houses and I have Air, an Airbnb, but once the market flips and I can sell those um, for what I want, there, it's all going in storage. Sell the Airbnb in the frat houses? Yeah. Well, yeah. the Airbnb I'm going to keep just because it's a family cabin in Alaska, but the frat houses are liquid. Oh, yeah, they're nice. gone once I'm, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So. Yeah, that's cool because you found your niche and you found what works. And it also sounds like it's pretty recession proof, like you're talking about. That's yeah, like, somewhat <laughs> or no? Well, yes, it pretty much is. Um, it's, we call it recession resistant because yes. idiots, you know, people that I'll give you an example, right? The last it's 2023, but if you were to buy in 2018, 2019, 2020, 
and you could do you could pick anywhere, build any types of units, and they would fill up. Right? It's almost like anyone could do it. But now in 2023, the market comes back down, and people think they can still just do anything and get away with it. There's a lot of pain right now, which is good for us as storage investors because we're going to get to benefit off that pain that people feel from not from basically not doing any research on their investments. So we call it recession resistant, meaning that anyone that does research and does their due diligence, they're going to survive in a recession. But anyone that doesn't, it's not recession proof. Like there mm. is, if you make huge mistakes without even doing any research, you can die. And that's, you know, it's actually good that it's not recession proof because it gives us more opportunities to buy in these down markets. But it is recession resistant. So with us doing our research, we have a high degree of confidence that in any market it's going to survive. Totally. Because we're because we have a good enough spread that we're feeling good about every single decision we make. We know we have enough cushion that if a bad time comes, we have it still. Okay. And when those bad times come, I'm just curious, like, do the prices fluctuate or do you see that prices just continually go to rise up for each individual storage unit? Good question. So um, the cool thing about storage is versus like a single family home or even like a industrial or commercial office space, it's month to month, right? So mm. we we do what's called re- revenue management where we can play with rates, right? If they fill up, we can rise them every single month. If they, if they, you know, have a, a tough winter, we can leave them alone. We can drop the street rates. We can play with it. And it leaves us more flexibility where if you're signing a five-year lease or even a one-year lease, you know, you might not have as much um, confidence raising and dropping prices. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Cause you can get stuck. Um, you can get stuck at a low price with a lease where with us, we can raise the price one month, drop the price the next month and just experiment with pricing. Huh? There's a huge advantage to storage. Oh, totally, man. It's a lot of stuff. I did not know <laughs> with, with the management side. Yeah. Cause I, I guess off the top of my head, it seems it's pretty simple like you do just pay a family to live there and you just kind of build like the office thing then you got the house up top (laughs) and a family runs it or what do you do well um some people would do that we we would call that like the mom and pop model for us we actually have economies of scale with our moving company so we have people that have been trained by me that run the facilities so it's not not necessarily we're not letting Explain it like this. A lot of people let the same person that lives there just kind of manage it. And there's no accountability in place mm-hmm. because they're, you know, they're living there. They could get away, you know, let's say for clocking in and clocking out, right? It's like if you live there, you could just sneak upstairs and say you're working, right? So I like to have someone live there be different than someone that works there. And actually, I'm moving away from having, I do have a live-in apartment at this St. George facility, but I'm actually moving away from that where we won't have someone live like the Cedar City one that we're closing on today. We're not going to have someone live there. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you're going to have someone manage it though. And they're going to be from within my ecosystem where we're not going to hire like a local um, because those are the people that give price cuts and those are the people that 
don't keep the rules. So you want to have strict management in place. And that's part of the value we bring as operations. And as you're, as you're scaling and you're getting investors and it's going out of St. George, Mm -hmm. I mean, what are you doing with management in that situation? Yeah, we have, we already have people set up all across the state. So my moving company is already operating across the state. Oh, wow. So we're just going to have those people step in. They're already trained. They'll, they'll be trained in detail on that specific asset that we build or buy, but they already know a lot of the ins and outs of the business. Dude, so you're keeping the process all in house. Yeah. For the yep. most part. Yeah. Because, and that's why, you know, people might, people with a fixed mindset might be like, Oh, well, I'm not going to partner with them. Cause I got to give up a percentage for the general partnership. But it's like, well, unless you want to build a job and you want to be the one to work there anyways, you're going to have some property management. You're going to have to delegate mm. out. You're going to have to, if in, unless you want it to be your job and you want to make it passive, you know, we're going to make it passive for you already built in. It's so <laughs> funny how similar our stories are because it's, so let's connect it to my story with the tiny yeah, homes. Please, yeah. So my vision, we're building these tiny homes. My vision is to get it zoned for short-term rentals. Nice. I have experience. Before the mission, I bought an online course on how to manage short-term rentals. Nice. I turned like our little guest house, convinced my parents to turn that into an Airbnb. So I did that for a while and then left on my mission. Nice. And there, there's just so much cash flow in it that I want to get back into it. And so here's what we have. So we're, we're building the homes. Uh, once we get it zoned for short-term rentals, like, yeah, we've talked about what if we just hired a management company, but my partners are, and I are talking like, why don't we just create the management company, do it in-house to where we can just hire someone to run it for us and we just keep on building um, that empire all under our name, right? Yes, and that's why I think, that's why I lean towards specialization because, you know, say you, you know, say you have an Airbnb and a single family home and a multifamily and a commercial building, right? It's harder to justify creating a property management company that's going to cover all four, but say you just do tiny home Airbnbs it's and you're going to do one here, one here, one here, then you can justify building a property management company that you own in-house and it covers everything. It's just kind of economies of scale. The more you do, the cheaper it is for you to, to run that property management company. Uh huh. So that's kind of the idea. That's why I lean towards specialization. Uh huh. And for you and even for me, like what did you do to, to build that team? Like where would I even start? So once I get the zoning, I mean, how would I start to build a property management company or for, in your case, like bringing on new people? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you, for example, this, I did a deal in Provo with partners, my first deal with partners, right? And I did that where I was running everything in big storage ventures, the investment side. Now I've hired to help for big storage ventures, right? And so, um, similar to the moving company, how I was there on, I was on the job every day, moving the furniture for the first investment. I was the one putting everything together so I could learn it and know it. But now my goal is for big storage ventures to be, you know, 50 to a hundred employees someday. Cause we'll have that, that well oiled of a machine. Uh. And so I think finding people, um, you can do it two different ways. And on my moving company, I did it one way on my storage investments. I did it the other and it's a, it's a controversial debate too, but 
building from the ground up, like the bottom up. So for example, delegating out like the lowest paid jobs first, the easiest stuff to do is how I did the moving company. And now I have like high level executives running the moving company, but that came later. On the storage investment side, I hired my executive first, like my highest paid person first, and then we're going to hire down. So we're going to hire, easy to handle everything, and then we're slowly going to hire higher from the top down. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you're able to do that because then you had more cash to be able to just hire the executive first. Is that why? Yes, because my I learned, you know, when I was doing my moving company, I personally needed the capital to keep it. I needed to keep as much of the pie as I could to reinvest it. But with the storage investments, I'm happy to free up my bandwidth to delegate these high level activities. So it's all, you know, like if I'm having someone work with investors, builders, you know, these high level things that are six figure, seven figure decisions, I have to have the the best, right? So that's why I decided to do it that way on the storage investments. Uh. But it's, it's tricky. It's a game. It's like, it's, it's, it's really exciting and it's a big, it's a big puzzle, but that's, that's why it's so much fun. Right. Wow. So I met with uh, Justin Prince the other week and we talked about this and he said, Kate, like you need to figure out how much you are worth every hour. Yes. So he sat down and we figured this out. So I have a goal of making a hundred thousand dollars per year. And so we calculated it and we figured out exactly how much I would be making an hour if I hit that goal. Mm -hmm. And then he broke it down. He said, look, like if you have any tasks that's less than that dollar amount, delegate it, eliminate it, or automate it, right? Just like Brody teaches. Yep. And so it's so hard to do though, because like I see so many tasks that I can do and I can do it well, but like you're saying, it might not be worth my time because there's other high level activities that I could be doing. But it's interesting because both helps me feel fulfilled and it makes me feel like I'm working hard, but one has a bigger impact, like you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, what those two are, are explaining is, I mean, I'm a product of that, right? Like Brody, uh, told me to read this book. It's like your world-class executive assistant. And now I have two executive assistants and it's right along the same lines of what you're describing. And so I think, I think you have got to, you can't, you've got to stay hungry, right? Like you've got to be willing to do hard things always but you've got to be smart about it. And I think it's really hard. Like we talk about this with my wife and her family. Like they're all like hard work is ingrained in them. They all are, are hustlers. Right. But now it's just talking about, okay, when is it the right thing to do to do this hard work? And when is it sometimes, when do we need to work smart? And, and how do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as lazy when you're working smart or can you, can you get over that? And can you, can you switch that in your head and realize, no, I'm not being lazy. I'm actually getting out of my comfort zone more by delegating this. Does that make sense? Mm. But still not, not getting too lazy, right? Like if you're not willing, for example, I went and I picked up a washer and dryer and I moved it for someone the other day just because, um, I, I haven't done that in years, but it's like, I'm still willing. I'm still willing. I'm still willing to do the hard work. I'm still willing to do some of these things, on, on occasion. Right. And especially with new tasks, I'm still willing to take on hard things that are new. 
but you got to balance it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting mindset change, right? That comes over time. The more experience you have. Well, dude, that, that's some awesome advice. And I, um, before we finish up with these last two questions, how can my listeners support and serve you and what you're doing? I think just connecting, right? I think that's the biggest way is to, uh, they talk about the rule 33, right? Like connecting with people that are your peers, people that might be, um, younger than you in their entrepreneurship journey and people that are, are ahead of you. Like we can all help each other. And, um, kind of a corny saying that we have in my networking group is givers gain, right? Like I'm, I'm not looking for value because I know that I can provide enough value to other people that it comes back around. Right. Mm. So I'm, yeah, anyone that wants to reach out, go ahead. And especially if you want to get in storage, I, I think the conversation is always going to be good because you're probably closer to owning storage units than you think. And even like, I'm not with this. One thing that's unique about the storage industry is you really don't need to keep secrets. So I'm willing to help anyone. And there was someone who called me, this is a real story from this week, someone who called me maybe a year or two ago and they just asked for advice on, like they weren't going to partner with me. They were just going to build their own storage units here in St. George. And I gave them some advice, even though they're my competition. Ah. And what happened is this week they called me and they said, Hey, we actually realized that we, you know, this is not a done deal, but they said, Hey, we're actually open to partnering with you because we see what you're doing. And we're actually really realizing there's a lot more work that goes into this than we thought. And we see the advantage of having a moving company funneling people in. So, you know, that abundance mindset of giving away that free advice really came back around and this deal might, it, you know, might not pan out 50, 50. Right. But the fact is, is like providing value to people always comes back and where I'm a storage nerd, anyone who wants to talk about it, I'm going to, right. <laughs> and, and helping people that, that people have gr- like, you'd be surprised the amount of people I talk to is like, I've always wanted storage. It's like, well, let's get it to you. Like, let's get you owning storage units like this year. Like, wh- why is it so far away? Uh-huh. Right. And so I think that's, that's really what I'm passionate about is building wealth for other people. And it always comes back around to me too. Dude, it's that abundance mentality. Yeah. And it just comes and it comes, man. There are so many opportunities out there. So for my listeners that want, uh, to connect with you, how do they find you? Just, I mean, um, you can DM big storage ventures or my personal account, Ben Goffertson, or we have the beyond net worth podcast. I'll, I'll get to it all. Okay. There (laughs) we go. All right. So to wrap up, these are two questions that I ask every guest. Um, so the first one is, so Ben, I want you to imagine that you can prescribe anything to the entire world and they have to do it for 30 days. What do you tell them to do? Good question. And I'll, I might take a different spin on this. Um, I, I have habits, right? Like I'm, I'm really good about exercising, planning, um, things like that. But I actually keep, I'm not as rigid as a lot of people, like a lot of my contemporaries or peers might be. I leave, I leave some flexibility so I can my habits have changed. Like what I do every day has changed over time. Right. So I would say, you know, one, one of my superpowers is planning. I'm not afraid to say that. Like I'm, I'm a planner. I do that every, every night. I'm going to, I'm going to look at my next day and my, my week, even my month even. But, um, 
I, I would say I'm different. I'm not as rigid. I, I, I do have like my, my habits, but I don't think that there's a habit that I keep that has helped me more than the other. Right? I think it's just good work-life balance, staying on top of your planning. You know, really my, uh, my, I don't even know if this is business related, but my thing is always plan for, for, from the most important things first and then plan with the leftover time. So like I'm always planning family time, spiritual time, like bucket list things into my, you know, you said 30 days, right? So look at your next 30 days and plan out your family time, your bucket list items, your spiritual things first. Then what? Then your next most important priority, that could be church or business or fitness, plan that next, right? Like with what whatever's left over and then with whatever's left over after that, right? So mm-hmm. I'd say that would be my, my big thing. You know, I, my everyday habits that I'd say are most important is family time, like making time for that. I'm a big guy on no regrets. So that's, I, I have to do family time first to live with myself. Right. And I, I back it up. Mm. I love that. It's a twist on your question. I, I think a lot of people were, you know, if you could do something every day, like cold bath or wake up at a certain time or read a book. Yeah. That's not me. I'm not that rigid. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I do that stuff. I work out every day at the same time. I do certain things, but I'm not, I don't have like that secret key. It's more big picture stuff that's brought me success. Totally. Love it. Okay. Last question. So I want you to imagine that you're on your deathbed and you're about to die and you're gathered around your family. I know it's kind of sad to think about, but you've achieved <laughs> oh, everything you've wanted in life, Ben, and you created all this success and you're leaving this legacy behind. But the problem is, is that all these things are going to be erased. Yeah. Right as you die, all the, the books you've written, all the podcasts you've been on, all this amazing content you're posting on your social media, it is wiped away. But there's two things that you can leave behind for this world and for your family to know you by. They're called the two truths. It's things that you know to be true because you've experienced them. What would those two truths be that the world remembers you by? I think for me, I mean, we can go, we can go the spiritual route with this, right? Like do it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're both spiritual guys. Right. And I think, I think it's that this life is, the time to prepare to meet God, to stretch and grow, right? It's so much bigger than business. And so I think if I could, if I could have people remember me by my faith, that would be my first priority, right? I think, um, kind of getting more into like, uh, a lot of people don't relate with that, but for, for me, I can't not say it, right? It's part of who I am. Yeah, me too. And, uh, so I think the other thing is relationships. I think that applies to anyone. doesn't matter if you're atheist or devout, right? Relationships are what you get to take with you. That's, that's what really matters to people is experiences. And so you'll notice like people that know me know that like, I never really spend money on possessions. I just spend money on experiences, bucket list trips and, and carving out time for people. That's what, that's what I hope they remember me by is just that I, I really invested in every relationship that mattered to me. Mm. Love it, man. It's powerful stuff. You know, I admire you and what you're doing at such a young age and your mentorship for me and all my listeners. 
Uh, for real, guys, go check out his content. He's posting all the time, especially if you're into storage units. Hit him up. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate your time, man. And this is Caden Terry. And this has been The Psychology of Success. Thanks for having me on. This has been The Psychology of Success. I invite you to pick one golden nugget that you'd like to apply in your life. Share this episode with a friend on social media and tag me at 11 Cato. Subscribe and leave us a review. Let me know what you enjoyed about this episode because I love hearing from you guys and what you think. Send me a DM on Instagram with your questions about business or anything we've talked about. Now it's time to get to work. Here's to actualizing our infinite potential one day at a time. This has been a production from a podcast studio.